Hey, and welcome to the Six Minute Mile podcast. I'm David Lavalley, and today we're pleased to bring you a terrific conversation with Ambie Burfoot. Ambie's top running performance came as a college senior when he was the surprise winner of the 1968 Boston Marathon on a 70 degree day. He was a key player in the glory years of American distance running, palling around with the likes of Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter. When his peak competitive days were behind him, Ambie continued to grow the sport by writing about it. He is a thoughtful and prolific author who has written several books along with hundreds of stories for Runner's World over the years, and he now writes for Podium Runner. We love this conversation because it provided us not only with the window into the past, but also with plenty of training advice and perspective that we can use in our everyday lives. Enjoy, and we'll see you out there. Wow. So where are you right now? I'm in Mystic, Connecticut. Okay. 90 miles south of Boston, more or less. Sure. Home, and- home of the Mystic Seaport. Um, but anyway, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. So, well, I am sitting about a half mile from the top of Heartbreak Hill. So I would love to jump in with a local bias question and start to explore the 1968 Boston Marathon. You've got an anniversary coming up, 53 years, I think, if I did the math right. I didn't know that 53 was an anniversary. I knew that 10, 20, 25, and 50 were anniversaries. But 53 is a new one to me. But uh, yes, coming up, and though I haven't told anyone, I am actually hoping to run in October because when else am I going to get to run the Boston Marathon in October? We hope it's the one and only time you get that chance. Exactly. So do I. Well, I like that because you're, I think you were the last, if I have this right, you were the last Sunday Boston Marathon winner ever, right? Before it switched to Monday permanently. What I've heard is that I was the last April 19th uh, day of the week, which I believe was a Saturday then, Okay. as opposed to the nearest Monday. So I think I was the last person to win the Boston Marathon when it wasn't on a Monday. Well, there you go. If, if winning the 68 Boston Marathon is not enough, you get that extra superlative on top. The last one not to win it on a Monday. It's worth <laughs> No one can ever take it away from me. <laughs> <laughs> worth, worth dozens of dollars and a free beer or two now and again in a bar. Um, so, so take us through that race. You were a senior at Wesleyan. What were your expectations going into that? Well, of course, when you say to take me through the 1968 Boston Marathon, my next question to you is how many days have you got? But uh, <laughs> let's let's see if I can do the executive uh, summary. And, sure. and, you know, I, I am not possessed of a fantastic memory. I have lots of leaks in my memory. But boy, the day that you win the Boston Marathon, you don't forget very much of that day at Amen. all. So I was a senior at Wesleyan. I'd been running very hard and very successfully, uh, I must say, for for four years at Wesleyan, winning New England championships. And when I went to the national championships, even though I was from the small school of uh, Wesleyan in Connecticut, I got to run against guys with names like Jerry Lindgren and Jim Ryan. And while I did not beat guys named Jerry Lindgren and Jim Ryan, I finished reasonably close to them. So I had racked up uh, some experience and some good performances. And certainly I had trained my rear end off for a couple of years to get ready for Boston. 
by the time I got there, uh, I knew I was running really well for some strange reason, which I have never understood. This was the one time in my entire running career when I was in that state known as flow. Right. Uh, the flow that the famous Chicago uh, psychologist with the unpronounceable name talks about. Every day for two weeks before Boston, I'd go out and jog, and I couldn't even jog slower than a six-minute mile. Hmm. And normally, I was a slow trainer, but everything was just flowing at that point. I felt terrific in the race. Uh, about midway through the race, we had a pack of 10 or 12, and I was just I, I was running at like 50% effort, even though I was in the lead pack. So I said, oh, well, I'll throw in a little surge here. Let's see what happens. Maybe somebody will drop away. So I did a little surge of 100 meters or something, and suddenly the entire field exploded. There was nobody left running the Boston Marathon except for me and one other guy. And that was the last thing on earth that I wanted because, you know, in a marathon, you like to run in a pack, you like to draft, you like to feel protected. And instead, now here I was suddenly the last 13 miles of the Boston Marathon. One of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose. I can finish this story before the end of the day. No, um, I love this stuff. In case you're worried. So, um, the funny thing was the other guy, Lieutenant uh, Marine Lieutenant Bill Clark from Quantico Marines was a runner known to me. I was known to him. Both of us knew that he was gonna win at the end because he was a better miler. He had a faster kick than I did. And I considered there was no way I could possibly beat Clark unless I tore him up on the heartbreak, on the hills, the Newton Hills uh, and right, heartbreak right, where right. you are. So I completely destroyed myself on all four hills, including heartbreak, and I could not shake him. And by the time we got to the top of heartbreak and he was still there, I, I clearly remember a moment when I just kind of let my body sag and I sort of thought, what's the point? I might as well like drop out because I'm... It, it's not going to be any fun to finish second in the Boston Marathon against this guy who's been chasing me forever. But as you and every uh, veteran Boston Marathon runner knows, it's the downhills that yes. are the big problem at Boston. And in fact, uh, my friend and rival Bill Clark, he cramped on the downhills. And uh, while I was slowing every mile because I had destroyed myself running up the hills, I didn't cramp. I was still running. And so I edged out to a, I forget, 15 or 20 second victory margin over him at the finish. And I just felt unbelievably lucky that I was able to hold on to that small uh, margin to the finish and to hit the line and literally collapse in Jock Semple's arms because I was just wasted. The, the feeling I remember is that of an overcooked noodle. I mean, if Jock Semple had not been there to hold me, I, I would have gone down just like an overcooked noodle. Oh, but man. he was there, he was a friend, and it was of course uh, one of the most glorious experiences of my life. Now, did you get it? How did you know that Bill Clark was cramping? Could you tell? So you crest Heartbreak Hill, you start going downhill, pretty steep downhill through Boston College. Could you sense right then that he was having some troubles? 
I didn't know that he was cramping until uh, we talked and we've been friends through the years. All I knew was that he fell away. He fell behind me. And I knew that it was not happening by any effort of mine because I was <laughs> wasted. Um, so something not good was happening before him. The most interesting thing historically is that what I remember is looking back over my shoulder a lot to see where he was. And people do not today appreciate that in 1968 and all prior Boston marathons, no, uh, not only was there no water, no Gatorade, no fluid stations, no assistance, no help, no nada uh, on the course, but there was also no crowd control. Uh. And yet it was a huge uh, festivity in Boston. The college students were out there drunk as ever. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and the day that I won was a sunny, warm day. And what I'm trying to tell you is that when I looked at the roads in front of me going down uh, towards the finish, they were absolutely closed. They were full of, uh, of fans and spectators all across the road in front of me. And they parted and let me through. But then they came back together in back of me. So when I looked back to see if Bill Clark or anyone else was catching me, all I saw was the crowds behind me. So it was it was a weird, surreal, unexpected uh, feeling. And I have no idea how I got to the finish line that day, but somehow I did. I love that story. And part of the strategy probably was also throwing up a distraction for your college roommate, Bill Rogers. You, you told him that there was a, you know, probably a whole, a whole busload of girls who were coming in uh, from some girls college and, and um, say, Bill, you got to stick on campus this, this weekend. I'm, I'm, I'll be right there with you. And then you took off when he wasn't watching. Yeah, Bill and some of my other friends were running a track meet at the University of Connecticut that day. But oh, is that where they were? Okay, That's where they were. Actually, my freshman year, I skipped a track practice at Wesleyan and didn't tell my coach I was going to run Boston. I just didn't show up for track practice that day. I went off and ran Boston as a freshman. Came back the next day and he said, okay, everybody's going to have to run a dozen quarters today. And I wanted to be a good soldier. So I jumped into the workout the day after the Boston Marathon and limped through those quarters. But um, I had an interesting uh, college coach, a wonderful, wonderful human being who happened to be a near major league baseball player who had never run further than 55 yards in his life. He was a champion indoor hurdler. And then hmm. outdoors, he went to play baseball. He almost made the Detroit Tigers. And so, um, he was not what you would call a fountain of distance running knowledge, but okay. as I said, he was a wonderful, supportive, great human being. We got along terrifically for four years. And they were after the first year when I didn't show up on Boston Marathon Day, he, he got the drift of, of, of where I was headed. And of course, as he always know, knew, and as he always said, you know, Ambie's out there doing three times as much training as I would ever tell him to do anyway. So why should I get in his way? Right, right. But I can't, I should know this. We've chatted with Bill a couple of times in the past, but so did he run Boston while he was at Wesleyan or, or he did not run till later after graduation? I have to think back to that. He ran afterwards because he graduated right, yeah. from Wesleyan as, as a good but mediocre runner. Then he had that period when he was up in Boston working at the hospital and, and his draft deferment or whatever. Yes. And that, that's when he got serious and he put a, 
in a year or two running around that strong, that little pond next to where he lived. And then he jumped into the Boston Marathon and started rewriting the books. Yeah. Amazing. And, uh, and, and you, I would, I would also give your coach, even though he'd never run further than 55 yards, credit as a great recruiter. But as legend goes, you actually recruited Bill Rogers. Is that a true story? I, I guess that's cr- true. I don't think I recruited him hard. What's true is that I had a very talented brother who was two years younger than Bill when Bill was a senior in Connecticut high school. And so I would go to cross country races uh, Bill's senior year and root against him because I wanted my brother to win. (laughs) And and my brother who was just a sophomore did beat Bill once that season, I believe, but Bill Bill won the big ones. Um, And, and, you know, Bill knew I was there and, and we talked and chatted and he knew Jeff Galloway was also there. The fact that three of us who played these different, unique, semi-important roles in running. We're all at Wesleyan University in Connecticut for no reason at all. And the mid-1960s is a pretty uh, interesting mathematical anomaly. But well, uh, Right. And then right down the road, you had uh, Frank Shorter at Yale in the true. same era, roughly, right? So it was a right. pretty good era for Connecticut collegiate running. It was. Frank was off uh, skiing and being part of the uh, glee club while he was at Yale, just beginning to run then. Oh, I didn't know that part. So he was not as serious until after graduation. I used to trounce uh, Frank in our practice meets. Yale was not on our schedule, but we had practice cross-country and track meets uh, against Frank, and of course, against Yale, and he wasn't Frank Shorter then, so it was no sure. big deal to, to run him into the ground in those races, but um, uh, I guess I can say that I beat Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter a whole lot in the 1960s. Unfortunately, I didn't beat them in the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, no, and your brother has one win against Bill Rogers. That's all you have to say. That's the headline. I, I beat Bill Rogers. And- we, we've got a family thing going. <laughs> I love it. So, and, and Bill talks a lot about, he went through a, a bit of a dark period, as you know, after graduation. And 1968 was one of the most difficult years in American history. And, and I know you are um, someone who's pretty aware of your times and, and politically astute and you know, think about the future of the world a lot. But what was that like going from this amazing individual victory at the Boston Marathon in April to really a world turned upside down over the next eight or nine months. Yeah, and I agree entirely with your characterization and thank you for saying I was relatively perceptive or or whatever. What I'm gonna tell you, however, is a different and honest story, which is that when you are as consumed with running as I was in 1968, and you are obsessed with the idea of winning the Boston Marathon and possibly even going to the Olympics that year, um, your world is pretty narrow. And it's not as if I didn't realize the events of the era. And it's not as if I didn't have the same sympathies as everyone in my class at Wesleyan who was, you know, protesting the military and occupying the president's office and marching in Washington. I was with those guys all the way, theoretically. But my reality is I got to get up at 6 a.m. and run 10 miles, and then I got to do it again at 4 p.m. 
Right. And my actual world did not extend beyond that. And, and I'm not proud of that. That's simply where I was in 1968. Uh, there were rewards to my approach and I lost out on some very, very meaningful experiences as well. But um, I can't go back and change history, my own or Martin Luther King or Bobby Kennedy or anyone else. I can simply tell you what it was like for me in 1968. No, very interesting, very honest. And uh, no, that was the year of the of the one fist salute too, right? Yes, uh, Tommy Smith City. and yeah. So that was that was the Olympics that you narrowly missed. Um, but did you follow that? Oh, of course, we yeah. all followed that, and we all knew of them. Although, I mean, they were sprinters, and I sure. was a distance runner. But I did go to some of the track meets that sprint that spring that those guys competed in, and we knew they were world champions and we knew that they were uh, part of a movement to empower black uh, athletes and black living in the United States. We didn't know that there was a protest coming in Mexico City. We didn't know how the Olympic Committee was going to react to it or any of those things. Uh, but I was well aware of all of that stuff. And uh, when it happened in Mexico City, and uh, I wasn't there and wasn't running. And in fact, I was injured that summer. Uh, I was perhaps a little bit more aware of all the other things going on because I wasn't running 20 miles a day. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, no, look, and, and this has been, you've always been a, a good voice for inclusion and expansion of the sport. Um, and I think with so many forces dividing this country and, and sort of pitting neighbor against neighbor sometimes and dividing people up by narrow political views. I, you know, I've always felt that sports is one of the great integrators and in, in great ways that people come together. And I think, um, and I think running and distance running is, is particularly so in a lot of ways, right. And we're, we're drawing from, um, you know, across the globe, not just across the United States, but, I don't know how often you step back and think about that of running in sports as a force for good. Of course, I think about it and I think about our successes and I think about our failures. And, and when you bring up the topic, what is immediately coming to mind for me is several years ago, was it three now? I had a 50th college reunion at Wesleyan. Mm. And so all of us were back there. And as I said, these were the guys, uh, Wesleyan was an all men's school then. So these were the guys who were marching on Washington mm. and sitting in protest in the uh, president's office and all that sort of stuff while I was out running. Um, but, you know, one of the themes of the reunion is, you know, we thought we were going to change the world in 1968. And to look back 50 years later and seeing, you know, maybe not that much has changed um, is a very sobering uh, reality check. And I, when you mentioned running, I, I think running has always been an entirely open sport. I mean, the first women to run the Boston Marathon, of course, will tell you that all of we, their fellow runners, were completely supported, supportive. We were crazy to want to have women join us in a sport that was all male. It was the officials who got in the way. Right, and in right. so many other areas of life and politics, uh, I 
don't think there's much doubt that the majority of runners are open to all and believe in complete inclusion. Uh, but we are a relatively small pond and the social mm. and political forces outside of us are relatively big. And perhaps we haven't made as much progress as we would like to. And uh, I certainly think it's good for all of us to be talking about it and for all of us to try and find ways to keep moving forward. And are sports overall a force for good on this issue? I mean, there's obviously a lot of money and and politics tangled up in this uh, these days. And But overall, are sports still a positive factor? I certainly think uh, sports can be a very positive factor. And, and I particularly think that recreational sports, which of course is what running is mm. for the 99.9% of us, uh, can be very, very positive and powerful in so many ways, uh, health and inclusion and mental health and you know all the things we talk about every day. I uh, am not a big follower of professional sports these days. And, you know, of course, uh, that's big, big business, which is not to say that running isn't business because that's what it's become for so many people. Uh, but But the recreational heart and soul of running hasn't changed through the years. It's just gotten a whole lot bigger. And thank goodness, after all of these years, we have 50% and more of participants are women runners and their kids and my grandkids soon are are taking up a sport that would have been considered extraordinarily foreign and strange and weird and crazy 50 years ago. And now it's normal and commonplace and kids uh, want to run because that's what they see their parents doing. And this is entirely positive. And there's a little bit of a strange dynamic in professional running, right? Where it's not, at least in the United States, it's not a hero worship sport, right? People, for the most part, don't have posters of, of Meb on their bedroom walls. If you're, if you're 12 years old, right? Um, On the other hand, it is, I think the largest participatory sport in the world. Um, so I don't, I don't know how you think about those two dynamics, right? It's not, um, you know, basketball becomes great because, or becomes incredibly popular because Steph Curry and LeBron are household names. We don't really necessarily have that in running, but yet it still persists. Yeah. Running is exactly as you described it. And I agree with you, uh, entirely. It, it's a huge, uh, important dynamic recreational sport and an almost non-existent professional sport. And I suppose the reason is TV. And I suppose that running is not the most exciting thing to watch on TV because you just got people in their shorts who look like they aren't going very fast around the track or through the streets of, of New York City. And you don't get timeouts and rest periods and opportunity to talk about whatever is going on. Um, so we certainly have not made it as, as a TV sport. I don't know if we ever are going to. I don't think it's worth uh, focusing a lot of our energy on that. I'd rather focus on fitness and inclusion and growing the size of the sport, some of the things you and I have been talking about t- today. Uh, but of course, it would be wonderful if you know running were on TV every weekend the way it's uh, 
for many, many years was in Europe and is in Japan at certain times of the years. It would be, uh, we would all be very excited to be able to follow our sport on a regular, consistent right. basis. The irregular basis, the Boston in the spring and New York City in the fall or whatever it is, that, ma that makes it very hard to, to build up any consistency in following and viewership, I think. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. And so, um, and when you think about the future of, let's say, American running, one of the stats I, that always sticks in my mind is that if you look at finishers at, at the Boston Marathon or New York Marathon, uh, I know this is particularly true of Boston, the number of sub three hour finishers at Boston has that gross number, not just a percentage, but the gross number has declined over the last 30 years. So there may have been more people finishing sub 30 when, when you were in Boston. I don't know how many people finished a few thousand, 5,000, a thousand more or less. Okay. Yeah. So 68, right. Yeah. So, um, so, but now with 35,000 participants, the number of sub three hour finishers has gone down. And so I, you know, I could argue that both ways, right. In on one hand, that's, that's nice. People aren't treating it as a race. Um, they're going out, they're enjoying themselves. It's better than sitting on the couch. Obviously they get a huge enjoyment out of that. Um, but I don't know, is a future of running as a competitive sport in America? Is that bad that it's not treated as a all out race? Well, that it, what you're talking about is a very, very interesting phenomenon. And we've all been talking about it for many decades now because it has been written on the wall for decades. And when you talk about the fact that there are fewer sub three hour or sub 245, wherever you pick runners than there were in 1983, it's not a modest decline. It's a gigantic decline. The numbers have fallen off the, the cliff. And uh, we can all pontificate. We can all say that we know the reason. The truth is that none of us know the reason. Anything we put out there is just pure speculation. Uh, I think it's uh, sometimes I sit here and think, why was it in 1983 that everybody in the U.S. was running 80 miles a week and running a 240 at Boston? I mean, why would anybody run 80 miles a week if there was not a big pot of gold on the finish line or, or something like that? Uh, but that's where the sport was then. It was just at the tip of that first great running boom that started with Jim Fix's book in the late 70s and went crazy after that. And... Uh, now we can all see that it's much more sane to run 25 miles a week and to finish the Boston Marathon in three and a half or even four and a half hours than it is to strive for a 2.30. Uh, you know, both of them get you, get you exactly zero, absolutely nothing. They both get you the same medal and shirt and neither one of them gets you any prize money. So why bother to run 2.30? Um, that said, it would be nice if we had more people running faster at the top of the sport. Of course, that would get us closer to more TV coverage and uh, fans, perhaps. None of us also know why it is that the Kenyans and Ethiopians win all the races, the big international races. Uh, when it started, uh, 30 years ago, I wrote a paper 30 years ago called <laughs> White Men Can't Run, which was I remember about that. The, the genetics of distance running. And 
the very, very smart sports scientists and geneticists I talked to in 1992 were absolutely sure that they were just a year or two away from unlocking this strange mystery about the Kenyans and Ethiopians. And here we are 30 years later and they're all shaking their heads saying, you know something? This is a lot more complicated than we thought it was gonna be. We thought we were gonna come up with a simple thing like different muscle fibers or different that or different carbohydrate loading glycogen rates. Right, right, and right. none of those things have been found. And so we have the continued clear elite status of the East African runners, but we really don't know why. So what's it's your personal, yeah, what's your personal hypothesis? <laughs> I, I haven't thought of one in a long, long time, yeah. actually. I was pretty sure it would be simple, like uh, fiber, muscle fiber types and greater aerobic capacity, uh, certainly being <laughs> extraordinarily thin as they are right. and living a simple life uh, helps. But, you know, everybody at the top level, whether it's Meb Kefleski or Ryan Hall or the guys running well today, Jared Ward and Scott, everybody runs 120 miles a week. Right. I mean, they all train exactly the same, give or take one or two percent. And all this inane talk about different training strategies and methods amounts to absolutely nothing because they're all yeah. maxing out at 99.5. So something is going on. We just don't know what it is. Maybe it's psychological. Maybe it's uh, it's mental. Uh, mm. There's a very interesting book written uh, very recently by a cultural anthropologist from England who went to Ethiopia to run with those guys. And there have been far fewer people go to Ethiopia because unlike Kenya, the former British colony where everybody speaks English, ah. in Ethiopia, they don't all speak English. So it's not an easy place to go. But he went and lived with them for 13, 15 months and observed more the cultural differences than the physiological differences. And he came up with a few interesting uh, psychological theories about the Ethiopian runners. But honestly, we don't know anything. We can only sit back and marvel at how tremendous these athletes are. I mean, a sub two hour marathon, that's, that's just incredible. insane. Yeah, that's really fun to watch. Yeah. Well, while we're on that topic quickly, what, what's your view of these carbon plated shoes? Is that is that cheating? Good for the sport? Healthy innovation? Uh, at this point, I think it just is, wh yeah. whether it's any or all of the things that you just said, I don't think we're going to go backwards. Uh, I am, I was initially completely astounded by the results of the shoes because I grew up among those runners. We were literally 100% sure that shoes could not be a, may be a factor because mm. it was clear to all of us that the best way to run was barefoot because then you didn't have to drag any weight around on your foot. But you couldn't run barefoot because the road was hard and there was glass on the road. Right. So the second best thing was to run in a tiny little shoe that weighed about four ounces and kept you from slicing your feet open when you ran. And the fact that a big, fat, foamy, cushiony, pillowy shoe could make you run faster was completely absurd to me right. when they first came out with these shoes. Um, and yet now the science is pretty darn clear and the results are even more clear than the science. I mean, everybody at the top is wearing the shoes now and 
right. everybody is running faster than we've seen everybody run before. So the shoes are a factor. They're making people faster. It's not because people are training harder. It's not because COVID kept them from going to the races for nine months. So they've had nine months of steady training instead of too much racing. Yeah, 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 that's all well and good, but it doesn't make people run as fast as they're running now. It can only be the shoes. Well, and, and speaking of COVID and post-COVID, a lot of people are predicting a roaring 20s kind of bounce back across all of uh, all of society, right? Not just for sports, but, and we've all seen lots of stats about new runners coming in or existing runners running more during the pandemic. So what's your forecast for, how does it, what's the net and lasting effect of the last 12 months on running? Yeah, I think it's a wonderful question and we're all very, very intrigued by it. I come at it from the point of view of a professional skeptic and a little bit of a statistical nerd, even though I'm not a mathematician. Everybody else in my family got a math degree from Harvard or MIT. I'm the only dumb one. But, um, you know, there is something very, very strong called regression to the mean. Mm -hmm. which means that when things go back to normal, things go back to normal and everybody goes back to whatever they were doing before COVID. Uh, I do think for some people, COVID has introduced them to something new and we've all seen the sales of bicycles and I believe mm -hmm. running shoe sales are strong and we've all seen millions of people walking around the block that we never used to see. Of course, the reason we didn't used to see them was because they were in their office building in the city instead of working at <laughs> home and getting out to walk the dog around the block. So everything we've seen for the last 12 months, I don't think is a very, very strong indication of what we might see 12 months from now, if in fact people go back to work. Um, but I think we all believe the world has changed in some dramatic way, at least yes. 10 or 20 percent of it. And some things will never be the same. And the question is whether more people will start to recognize the importance of exercise and the outdoors and fitness and good health in their lives and get out there more or whether more people will order Uber Eats and never get out of their sofa or office chair. And I understand there's been a COVID-15 weight gain among many, just like the college weight gain. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, it's a big world out there. Many seemingly contradictory things can happen at the same time. So I'm not making any predictions that we're going to see record numbers of new runners uh, a year or two from now, but I'm hopeful of it. And you've seen several of these cycles now, right? And one of the things we haven't chatted about is your career as a journalist and a writer and a successful author. In general, what drives these these booms? And there, there have been a couple of these, right? And sometimes it, it's a catalyst, like a Frank Shorter winning a gold medal. But, um, but it seems like there's more to these booms than one news event that drives them. Um, so what, what drives 
you know, what propels this waxing and waning of running interest? <laughs> Thank you for giving me credit for being that smart. I can assure you I am not. I was, I was um, trying to give you credit for being old, but anyway. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, uh, I think those things are not simply explained, uh, of course, yeah. as you gather from my earlier comments. I've seen the Jim Fix running boom, but maybe it was the Frank Shorter running boom, or maybe it was the Bill Rogers running boom. Some people think it was the Earth Day running boom. Some people mm. think it was the Whole Foods running boom because there was a foods thing going on in the early 70s. Uh, I've seen Jim Fix drop dead of a heart attack at the side of the road. Mm. And that did not do anything for the sport, but it didn't kill the sport. Uh, the 80s were a little bit slow, but we got going again. I've seen Joan Benoit Samuelson win the 84 Olympic marathon. And if you wanna know what happened afterwards, I would say not much. Right. I've seen Oprah Winfrey win, run the 1994 Marine Corps marathon a decade later. And if you ask me what happened after that, I would say half the women in the world started running. Mm. Was it cause and effect? Mm. Was it Oprah that got women running because the tagline we gave to Oprah at the time at Runner's World was, if Oprah did it, so can you. A lot of people bought into that and a lot of people got out there, but I can't tell you that that was uh, cause and effect. There was a period during the uh, 1990s, I remember this bitterly, but I'm saying that lightly, uh, when Americans were not running very well. And as the editor of Runner's World, I was blamed for that. I used to get letters from people saying, it's Runner's World's fault that Americans are not doing very well because you're publishing articles now about women and joggers and slow runners and yada yada, penguins and so on. And I'm like sitting in my office in tiny little Emmaus, Pennsylvania saying, Wow, I had no idea that I was such a powerful <laughs> individual that I could keep the best, most motivated runners in America from performing at a higher level. Um, but if some only, if thought, only you could use those powers to predict the uh, the megabucks Powerball number, right? Then yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> if only I had a few of those powers. Um, so uh, you know, I mean, since the since the mid 1990s, post Oprah and everything else, running has been on this incredibly positive chair and the numbers keep going up and up and the, and the women keep on running and coming back and bringing more family members into right. the sport. And um, it's almost hard to imagine how you go up from here. I mean, from the top of the mountain, everything is tends to be downhill. Right. But uh, that's not to say that there's uh, not more work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done. And if we can get more people moving. And I'm perfectly happy to encourage people to walk around the block or walk the dog or run a 5K. There's no rule that says that everybody has to qualify for the Boston Marathon. It's a nice goal if you can imagine it, but it's not a golden rule. So uh, I'm happy to get people doing whatever they might be uh, moved to doing. Well, it's one of the things I wanted to ask you about because you have, along, uh, along with Galloway, your your uh, your fellow Wesleyan grad, but you've both been proponents of being able to accomplish goals with less with less mileage, right? Fewer days per week, 
Um, and I know one of we'll, we'll link out to this, but you have, um, you have some excellent training plans that you provide to runners. Uh, but there are ways now to train for a marathon without running 60 plus miles per week. Right. It, it, so describe that for us. So how did you come to that realization as a former 150 mile a week person? Uh, how, how did you come to this conclusion that, Hey, you can run three days a week and, and still train for a marathon? Yeah, the, the crystalline moment for me was in, in 1976, uh, eight years after I won Boston. I got myself in very, very good shape, went to the Olympic trials marathon in Eugene, looked up at the halfway mark, and I was in fifth place, and I thought I was going to catch a couple of the people ahead of me. I knew I was not going to catch two of them who were named Frank and Bill, but there okay. were some others I thought I might catch. And so for a minute, minute in 1976, I had that Olympic flash again. Maybe it'll happen for me today. Of course, it didn't. Some of the guys who ran negative splits like Don Cardong went flying yeah. past me in the final miles. But I finished 10th and it was it was quite a good performance. And it was two months later that I finally realized you know, Ambi, you're married, you're starting a family, you've got a job, it's, uh, life is full enough without 100 miles a week and 100 miles a week isn't going to get you anything very tangible. So let's run 30 miles a week. And I overnight, I dropped from 70 miles from 100 to 30. And I found hmm. out that 30 is a much happier number than 100. And, and the reason is that when you're running 100 miles a week, you have to have high expectations. You have to expect to run well. You have to expect to win Boston or, or make the Olympic team or something. I mean, there are very, very few people running 100 miles a week just for the hell of it. And, and those pressures and those expectations are not often met. None of us wins all of our races. Most of us win very few of our races because there are a lot of other talent out there competing against us. So I went to 30 miles a week. I went to calling myself a mid-pack runner. I went to enjoying races. There was no pressure. I didn't care what my time was and it was great. And that's when I decided <clears throat> that what was more important to me than winning another Boston marathon was being a lifetime runner mm. and staying as health and healthy and fit and happy and uh, all of those things as I possibly could. And um, as the years went on, um, I truly did become a lifetime runner. And uh, you don't know this, but Jeff Galloway and I are in a ferocious race to become the first person in the history of Homo sapiens to complete a marathon during eight consecutive decades of our lives. Ah. Meaning you do one as a teenager and you do one as an 80 year old. My problem is that Jeff is one year older than me and I haven't ah. figured out <laughs> how I can beat him to 80. You need uh, to so, Tanya Harding him on that uh, you know, January 1st of that year. Well, I certainly don't want to get there that way. But, old, <laughs> you know, old John Kelly from Boston Marathon fan, uh, fame ran many great marathons uh, in his 80s. But he was not smart enough to run one when he was a teenager. And Jeff and I both ran marathons when we were teenagers 
teenagers. So we got that decade on the board early. So we are uh, clawing, I love that. clawing at each other to reach eight decades of marathoning. And I've looked a little bit. I don't think anybody has ever done it because <laughs> nobody ever wanted to. No, that's a that's a small, yeah, especially official entrance. Um, no, no, I'd be shocked if somebody's done that. I love that. Right. All right. Um, so, but putting in terms maybe more realistic for most of our listeners and readers, yes. but so, I mean, you talked about dropping from 100 miles to 30, but what about dropping from 60 to 30? What, what, what does that look like in terms of diminishing performance? Well, I think, I think all of us are just simply uh, ruled by or hopefully smart enough to listen to our bodies. I mean, it's the oldest and it's the number one rule in running. And, and often we're not very good at it. Let's face it. I've made plenty of mistakes in my running career, done things my body told me not to do. And sometimes it bit me back in the rear end. But um, when you're a, as you age, um, you naturally uh, find your body telling you to do a little bit less and to uh, do a little bit more bicycle riding or elliptical, or all of us are advised to do strength training. And, you know, I'm the skinniest guy on the face of the earth. And I've been trying to add muscle to my frame all my life and nothing happens even now that I'm retired and I can go to the gym a couple of times a week nothing happens, uh, but I still go and I do it because I enjoy it as another. Call, call Ryan Hall. He seems to be have done a pretty good job. That's an amazing transformation. I, I, but anyway. I asked Ryan five years ago, I said, Ryan, what have I got to do to be like you? He said, you got to eat 7,000 calories a day. <laughs> I said, Ryan, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Consequently, I don't look like Ryan Hall, but um yeah, just, you, you, have to, you have to be smart enough to listen to what your body is telling you. You have to want to preserve your body, of course. And, and some people, I mean, we all want to preserve our bodies. Uh, some people are unfortunate enough, unlike me, they're unfortunate enough that they're still fast in their 60s and 70s. And of course, if you're still winning races at 60 and 70, then you're going to want to push to keep winning races because we all have right. egos and we all like winning age graded or age group awards sure. or whatever. Uh, listen, if I could run faster with 10 more miles a week, I'd be going for it because I'd like to win a race again, too. But so far, I see no indication of that happening. So I'm happy with what I'm doing. And I, I've really put my emphasis on the long term rather than the short term. Yeah, great. Uh, I am lucky enough. And I think this is pure luck that orthopedically my body's in good shape there. I've got no knees or ankles or hips or anything else, particularly telling me uh, that I can't do it anymore. So I run three or four, sometimes four five days a week. I've run more during COVID because I couldn't go to the gym. And some of those times I run a little bit longer and some of those times I run a little bit faster and I run hill repeats because I like hill repeats. Oh, good man. Uh, but uh, it's just part of an overall rounded program. And uh, other days I'm not running. I, I have a recumbent bicycle at home and I got addicted to that 20 years ago. And that's where I read all my newspapers and magazines Great. and medical journal articles and things like that. Great. I like that. So 
without without uh, giving away free advice because people uh, you do have some of the, your plans are for sale, which is appropriate and good. Uh, they're professionally designed. But is there a say if, if somebody of a I don't know a forty year old man wants to run a sub four hour marathon, can he safely get there with three days of training per week, three days of running per week? Oh, absolutely. I, I think for a lot of people, three days is probably a, a, a perfect number. Yeah. One reason some of us run a little bit more than that is simply to keep from gaining weight because that's, uh, you know, that happens to all of us, uh, runners and not runners through this uh, abundant American lifestyle yes. we have. And gaining weight does not assist your uh, running in True. any way shape or form so uh, that keeps me out there a little bit more sometimes but i think i think three days a week is a perfect formula and you can do a lot with that particularly if you consider that you're going to gradually build up that long run whenever you do it the weekend long run and everybody does a tempo effort of some kind in the middle of week of the week and and you can't beat that and then, you know, your other day is probably an easy day. And, and, and that's all you need. I, I mean, again, we get, we get hyperinflated over these incredible training programs of the two-hour marathoners and the 40-year-olds right. who right. are still, you know. And, and that's what you got to do if you want to be like that. But to, to run well and strong yourself on a minimal program uh, is very, very doable if you stick with it for a while and have a little bit of that good old tough runner's discipline and um, just get in your three or four months of training and watch it pay off on race day. Yeah, Galloway's done a lot of research on this too. And, and he's, it's, it's intriguing to me that, the, that he would say, and I think you've written on this too, that you can get almost as much benefit, or in some cases more, um, by a, a, a vigorous walk for six miles than you can for a run over six miles, right? And, you know, a lot of ways that's safer and better for your overall health. And um, so just, just walking can provide an excellent base and excellent training for a running race. Well, I love walking. I walked six miles with a good friend of mine uh, yesterday. I don't know that I would say it's a, a great way to get in shape for running really, but I think it's an, it's a perfectly great easy day or alternative training day uh, yes. i think you still need your long run and your tempo run and a little bit of effort here and there but um you know uh, you know running and walking are what humans are designed to do and you know bicycle is great except people fall off their bicycles and they break their wrists and they break bigger things than their wrists and that scares the crap out of me Same. because you know i'm 75 and my balance and all that stuff it was is not what it once was and why would i want to risk that and swimming is fantastic but it's a completely unnatural activity and you have to have access to good water and i swim in the summer because i live near the water but not the rest of the year uh, skiing and tennis and all those torquing motions to me are just crazy. Yeah. It's great if people enjoy them uh, and manage to stay in one piece. But I just think you can't be running and, and walking and you can do it right out every door, everywhere almost. And, and it's obviously what we were born to do. The knee hinges forward and backward with X exquisite uh, agility and grace and there you go 
I, I, I'm a believer. I like it. Um, I want to touch briefly on your journalism career too, because you were, you were at runner's world at really some of the seminal moments of, uh, the American, uh, American magazine industry and of running booms. So how did you become involved? You were one of the earliest um, writers for Runner's World uh, way back when it was first started. Uh, I think Bob Anderson started in 66, if that sounds right, maybe. Right. And you shortly thereafter, I think you started writing and eventually became editor-in-chief. And so how did you choose that as a career path? Well, Runner's World chose me, and that was the great good fortune of my life, of course. Uh, I can't quite claim to be one of the earliest contributors, but um, in the mid-1970s, one of the early ones, uh, Hal Higdon, uh, one of the editors asked Hal if he knew anybody else out there who could write some articles, and Hal suggested me, so I wrote some articles and a chapter to a book or two, and, and I just happened to be deeply involved in running and relatively literate and apparently capable of stringing a couple of sentences together. So um, at one week, 1976, I believe, just before the Boston Marathon, I got a, a letter from Bob Anderson uh, out in Palo Alto, California. And he said, Amby, things are going well here. We'd like to have an East Coast editor. Would you like to consider being our East Coast editor? And I was like, are you kidding me? You can offer me a job at Runner's World. You don't even have to pay me. Um, and we got, we got together and had a breakfast at the Boston Marathon two weeks later or whatever it was. And I was basically signed up to be the East Coast editor of Runner's World. Uh, I did that for a couple of years, and then um, basically for tax reasons, it didn't work out for Runner's World to have a Connecticut office, so I became more of a stringer or something. And then in 1984-5, when Bob Anderson had to sell Runner's World, it was uh, bought by Rodale Press in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. And I actually was one of the few who knew Rodale Press at that time because I was interested in organic gardening and nutrition. And ah, that was the kinds of magazines a that lot Rodale of titles was, there, right. was publishing then. So um, Rodale was a family business that was owned by an absolute saint of a human being whose only goal in life was to get everyone to start organic gardening in their backyard and, and produce their own food instead of agribusiness farms everywhere. And uh, we just landed in the right place at the right time. And, and the next 20, 30 years were pretty much history. And it was, uh, I, I had the greatest jobs a fan of running could have. Uh, the company was the best it could possibly have been. And, you know, and I don't live with rosy glasses. I don't think everything is Camelot, but Rodale in those days was the best place to be. My boss, George Hirsch, came down from New York and he was the best boss. And we just had the most fun you could possibly have putting out a magazine that was uh, meeting people's needs and helping uh, people find ways to incorporate running into a healthy lifestyle. And as it turns out, it was a pretty good business too, right? And, and the demographics of runners, people who are pretty dedicated to the sport, is a dream demographic for almost every advertising category you can imagine, cars and banks and obviously you know, running shoes and things. 
Uh, you're absolutely right about that. And it drove us completely crazy because we could look at our demographics and we could see that we had the exact same demographics as Yachting Magazine and titles like that. And we would pick up Yachting Magazine and we would see Mercedes-Benz advertisements and all the expensive watch companies. And right. we would see all these ads that nobody would ever dream of putting in Runner's World because <laughs> they thought we were just a bunch of skinny right. naked people who puked <laughs> at the finish line. So um, while the demographic was in fact fantastic, the somehow the visual concept that Madison Avenue didn't work. So we were very, very successful because of course the, the shoe companies had sure. to advertise in Runner's World then and we charged them a lot of money because they had to be there. And then came the power bars and other nutrition companies and whatnot. So it was a good business, but I'm chuckling because we were always a little envious of the ads that we did not get at Runner's World. Well, and of course now you see advertisers who try to intentionally try to tie into that when no matter who that whether it's a insurance company right or a, or an automotive company they're trying to tie into that active outdoor lifestyle every single ad you see on tv has a runner skirting across the background of it and the Isn't reason amazing? is because everyone now believes correctly that runners stand for this idea of discipline and determination and goal setting and getting after it and finishing and completing the job and performing at your best. They all have got runners there because those are attitudes that they want to associate with their products. It always kills me that they hire models who don't know how to run at all for these ads and they look stupid attempting to run. Most of them are prancing instead of running. But the metaphors, Amen. I say, the metaphor of the runner is a very, very strong metaphor in American culture now. And the people who, when I was running in the 60s, used to make fun of us and throw beer cans out the window at us and things like that. They don't do that anymore. In fact, most people express admiration for the runner. They say, of course, we've all heard it. Oh, I could never run to the mailbox and back. It's so, I think it's so incredible that you can run 5K or a marathon. Well, that's a whole lot better than a beer can coming at you. <laughs> so uh, as, a, as a student of the media, and I know you have a successful running oriented newsletter now, email newsletter, what is the right model? I mean, it's a really difficult transition for people like Runner's World when it, the world went from print to digital and it's an easy, easy sort of pot shot to take to say, well, you know, you grew up in the print world, so you don't understand digital. Well, of course they understand digital, right? There are a lot of plenty of smart people at Runner's World, but it's tough to make that transition, right? And even with the great readership and following and amazing brand name, what what's the right prescription for for a runner's world or um, you know a, a modern digital publication? Uh, as you know by now from my previous answers, I have no idea whatsoever, <laughs> and and I would love to tell you what the answer is. First of all, I'm six or seven years retired from runner's world, so I'm not in the hallways and, and I'm not yeah. seeing the handwriting on, on the wall, but we all see what's going on out there in traditional media. And unless you're the New York Times or the Wall Street yeah. Journal, it's a tough, tough world out there. And even 
as great a brand as Runner's World, and Runner's World is an absolutely fantastic brand. Agreed. Um, it has to be difficult because we all know the social media companies are gobbling up all the ad dollars. Yes. And uh, advertising used to be half of the revenue that came to to Runner's World. The other half was subscriptions. Well, they're only just now trying to get subscriptions going, and that's a tough. Uh, mm-hmm. job because people grew up expecting the internet to be free and uh, <laughs> frankly none of us want to pay for something if we can figure out a way to get sure. it for free and the advertising is way down so it, it's a tough tough world out there uh, I hope Runner's World finds its way because I don't know if this is still true I used to think that a strong runner's world was really a good thing for the running world for the running community because it gave the sport a focal point where everybody could come together and as I used to tell people you know you could squeeze 50,000 people onto the starting line at the New York City Marathon, but we could squeeze 500,000 into the pages of Runner's World or at least have that many readers every month. So our the reach and the influence was extensive. Now the world is broken into millions of pieces and I'm not sure who has the greatest influence and, and the greatest reach or any of that, those things. Um, running, the internet has been good for running. There's no question whatsoever. Running is a very, very interesting sport because it's one of the few global sports. It's a true global sport. Yes. So people are interested in running on every continent on this planet. Um, it's not on TV, but there are a million internet sites that bring you running information. So there, there's a lot of stuff out there now. And um, I'm sorry that there's not a simple focal point like Runner's World, but there is uh, a lot of good stuff out there. No, it's free. <laughs> no, well, that's the other thing, right? You, 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 you know, if I ask the 27 year olds in our office, well, how much do you pay for written content? They look at you as if you have three heads. Well, no, it's all free. Haven't you heard of the internet? Right. right. So they're not, that's why that subscription model, even though you would, whatever that subscription price is, $4 a month or something, you, you get your money's worth. Uh, but the world is just not used to paying for written content, as you say, unless you're the Wall Street Journal or New York Times or Washington Post, maybe. Sure. Otherwise, it, that's, um, yeah, I, look, I, I agree with you. I, I'm a big fan of the publication. I hope it survives and thrives. I think it's good for our sport, but, um, but they, they still have some work to do. Everybody's got work to do. Every, everybody's got to, fig, got it, got to figure it out and, and maybe, the more niche publications are where it's all headed. You've got your trails and you've got your ultras and you've got your women and you've got your guys and you've got your youth and you've got elite yeah. running sites and you've got sites that are proud of the fact that they're not elite running sites. So, right, um, right. Or they're, shoes they're, or yeah. Yeah, shoes, of course, and races. So there, there's so much stuff out there. Nobody can keep up with it. I spend yeah. a lot of time trying to keep up and it, it's impossible. And, uh, you know, the number of podcasts like this one we're doing now. Right. I love listening to podcasts, but who can keep up? And now there are a lot of good, <laughs> there's a lot of good running content podcasts. It sounds, yeah. They're, they're, well. they're terrific. And they get to go into so much more depth than the, uh, Absolutely. Than the print pages. Yeah. Right. No, you do. As you know, you do, a, you do an interview for a print story and you might have three sentences that, that make it into the story out of a half hour call. Right. But 
you know, the, the other 29 minutes were really interesting too. So I, I'm a big fan. I agree with podcasts. Um, well, look, you've been, you've been a great sport with us. We will, um, we will test your patience for just a minute or two longer. We'll, we're gonna, we'll hit you with a couple quick questions here. We've done with all of our other guests and uh, no pressure, but we've had some interesting responses over, over the last year or so. I'm laughing because I'm terrible at those quick questions, but I'm, I'm ready to go. All right. Well, <laughs> you're, 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 watch this. You're going to overachieve. Uh, favorite movie of all time? <laughs> when you get to music, I'm going to uh, fail for sure. Uh, favorite movie of all time. I go for the classics. I'm going to go for um, Casablanca. Oh, that's a great one. I don't think anyone said that. That's good. I'm a sucker for love stories. Good man. All right. That's good. Favorite book. Oh, I was telling someone, I'm going to go for the uh, non-running athletic book by Laura Hillenbrand, The Sea Biscuit. Oh, that was, was great. It was fantastic. I mean, the, the next one, the running book was was great too, but Sea Biscuit just blew my mind when, when I read it. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, she had it a terrible autoimmune disease while I think she wrote the book flat on her back in bed. If I'm remembering this right. I remember that just right? as well. And it's astonishing when you think about the fact that she's written two books about a great racehorse and Louis Zamperini uh, endurance athlete. And she's the exact opposite herself physically. It's really yeah. interesting. I'm dying to know if she's got a third one and if it will also be an athletic sporting story. Yeah, I, I don't think I could handle the pressure of coming up with a third amazing oh, book like that. So uh, great answer. Uh, morning runner, evening runner these days, middle of the day runner. I'm a middle of the day runner. I've always preferred running in the late morning. And that's when I do a lot of it now. Of course, in the summer, I've got to get out earlier. In the summer, I go to the uh, beach early when the wind hasn't kicked up yet. And I swim a half mile and then run 5K. In your wet shorts? I, you know, I started doing it in my wet shorts, believe it or not. I thought it would keep me cool and it kind of did. And, and I didn't have any problems with it. It sounds <laughs> icky. I'm sorry, but it worked. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, remind me someday I'm going to send you my, my best Strava map ever, which was oh. a crazy story, but we swam island to island and ran across these other islands. It, it was, it's the, the goofiest looking Strava map you've ever seen in your life, but I'll, I'll bore you with that one. Um, uh, headphones, no headphones while you're running? You know, I, this is embarrassing. I always tell people I did get addicted to podcasts in the last year or so. And I'm generally listening to a podcast when I'm running or walking, unless I'm with a friend. And of course, I, I, I greatly prefer to run with somebody else, but that hasn't been easy the last sure. year. So I have listened to a lot of podcasts while running in the, in the last year. And, uh, I'm a pretty safety-oriented runner, so I haven't had any accidents. And of course, I'm not in a city. I'm in a rural community. So, so far, the, the podcast and the running have worked well for me. Uh, you prefer trails or roads? I prefer roads now because I fall down on trails and bad things happen when you <laughs> fall. I, I have the most horrendous running injury story nobody has ever heard because I've never written about it and it's too long to go into now but I fell down 
Uh, I got a lot of wounds. The doctors gave me too many antibiotics. Oh. I end, ended up with a microbiome disease that catapulted me into a major clinical depression. What? I, had, I had never had a bad day in my life, David, and I had months of clinical depression and anxiety before my, my body finally decided to turn me around, but it was a horrendous experience. Oh man, maybe it's, maybe it's too soon still, but you have to write that one up. That's uh, an incredible someday. story. I yeah. know. I, I'm sure a lot of people would tap into that, right? Sure. Um, uh, last two questions. If you could have a dinner with one person living or deceased, who would it be? Um, I just watched the Einstein, 10 hours of Einstein on uh, TV, but I'm just not mathematical enough for Einstein. We just watched uh, Hemingway also. We, we just started that, yeah. Yeah. Um, who am I overlooking? Just so many people. I guess I'll have to go with uh, Hemingway because he's top of mind right now. Same. No, it's a great. I'm only one episode in, but that's really well done. And, I have uh, been. To, I have been to the place where Hemingway committed suicide. I oh no, where's that? Idaho. Ketchum, Idaho. Yeah, oh, Sun man. Sun Valley. We had several Runners World conferences in Sun Valley, so uh, I do have that memory as well. All right, last question for you. Uh, best mentor you've had in your career life. <laughs> That's the easiest question anybody's ever asked me. We didn't talk earlier about the fact that my high school coach was John J. Kelly, the right. 57 Boston winner, two-time Olympian. John Kelly was so far ahead of his time in the 1950s, it cannot even be described. In the 1950s, he was an organic gardener. Nobody Amazing. knew what it He was anti-war. He was pro-environment. He was anti-car. He was anti-big government. He was, he was basically anti all the bad things and pro all the good things. An Irish literature loving poet, marathon running genius uh, of a man, the gentlest and most accepting man on the face of the earth. And everybody who knew him in Southeastern Connecticut loved him. We have the best runner statue in the world in Mystic because it includes both Kelly and one of his dogs. And he was always oh, with dogs, that. walking them, running them. And um, he had a huge influence on uh, everybody's life who met him, but very, very directly on mine from 1957 when he won the Boston Marathon until 1968 when I won, there were no other American winners. So it was oh, the direct passing of the torch and then me to Bill Rogers. And there you have it, John, John J. Kelly, not the older. He was John J. Kelly, right. the younger. No relation, right? No relation even, just the same name. He was a monster influence on my life to, to whom I am eternally grateful. I don't think, I may be wrong, I don't think there's a book on him, is there? <laughs> my friend and I did one last year. You it's did? Okay. Now. It's called The Book of Kel, K-E-L. It's a takeoff on The Book of Kells. Sure. And it's it's on Amazon and everywhere. And it's a, it's got a lot of great Kelly stories, a fantastic cover of him. Oh, great. All right. That's embarrassing. I missed that in my show prep, but I will, I will make sure I, I link out to that. Oh, that's great. And so that's available on Amazon. Absolutely. So it's fully published. Yeah. Uh, and are you happy with how it turned out? 
Yeah, I'm very, very happy. People were after me to write the book for 10 years. And they all thought I was going to produce Tuesdays with Maury or one of those things. <laughs> right. The remarkable thing about Kelly is he did not teach by uh, language or methods or strategy or writing down codes or, or scriptures. He taught entirely by example. So mm -hmm. what I have of him is does not transfer well to words. It's in my head and in my heart and in my gut. Uh, and so there was no way I could ever alone write a sufficient book about him. But we got a bunch of people to work together on the project. And so you, you have many people's perceptions of Kelly, which are all similar and additive. That is great stuff. Um, all right, you just get, you gained one customer and we'll, we'll blast it out to our listeners and readers and, and make sure we get more than just one customer. But that's, I, I just ran out, I just finished the last book. And so that'll be my next one. Good. Love it. Amby, you're such a good sport for putting up with, uh, with our, our kind of meandering line of questions here. No, it was not at all meandering. It was all right on point and you were terrific asking them. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll get together again sometime soon. You bet.